to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, as always, we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot. There's a lot today. President Biden is in Europe uh, to meet with allies as the war begins its second month. There was an interesting piece in the Washington Post today saying that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley have been trying to phone their Russian counterparts to try to deconflict things like troop movements or air sorties just to have a regular, you know, kind of contact with them. But the Russians won't accept the calls. The Post says that there's a hotline that's been established between the two sides, like the red phone that they used to have during the Cold War. But the Russian uh, military officials in positions of authority just won't engage. What happens in, in cases like that when there's a red phone? There's always like, you know, a private or a corporal on each side. And every day they call each other to make sure that the line works. Okay. Right. You do that every single day. You make sure the line works just in case the secretary of defense and the minister of defense want to talk. They can just pick up the phone and it works. But they're not doing that. Sounds like a cushy job, though. I, I would say day. so. <laughs> just Although I'll tell you what a cushier a job book. is, is the guy who holds uh, the secretary of defense's hat. It's an actual job and you have to be a colonel to have it. And you could just put it on a table or something or nope. a hat rack? Nope. Wow. He'll take off his hat and he'll take off his coat and hand it to the colonel and the colonel just stands there. I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings with these guys where there's a colonel with a chest full of medals and his job is just to hold the secretary of defense's hat and coat. It's embarrassing. These are weird sometimes. But you know your next position is going to be brigadier generals. And sure, that's why you yeah. Do it. And so yeah, you're fine. Uh, there was a North Korean ICBM test, a mm-hmm. big one. Yeah. Um, it went 3,728 miles high. Impressive. Yeah. And it landed off the coast of uh, Japan, like 70-something miles off the coast of Japan. The reason why everybody's freaking out today is because uh, for the very first time, a North Korean ICBM has the ability to hit any city in the United States. Not to say that they have the ability to tip it with anything. Right. Right? But that's the idea behind, right? Yeah. I mean, not to hit the United States, but that it can carry a a A nuclear payload. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting. Republican senators on the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee yesterday ganged up on uh, on Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, calling her lenient toward pedophiles. Now, we said last week that this was going to be their theme, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they said that when she was a district court judge, that she um, occasionally gave sentences to pedophiles that fell under what they believed to be the sentencing guidelines. So they never raised this a year ago when she was elevated to the Circuit Court of Appeals. They didn't care a year ago. Now that she's being uh, named to the Supreme Court, all of a sudden they're they're losing it because they say she's gone easy on pedophiles. It's also just, I mean, I think sometimes, and maybe I will be proven wrong on this, but I do think sometimes uh, there is a tendency to uh, see QAnon around every corner. Yeah. And also, I think there's a tendency to just completely dismiss every single part of that uh, conspiracy True. as stuff that's, hey, look, the details are wrong. But like the the there are some things about that that are worth uh, the echoes of reality, yes. I will say. Yes. But this is idiotic. And this, this is, is obviously this is obviously about that is about it's about pandering to these to to QAnon people. Yes. And uh, acting like 
Yeah, act, acting like anybody out there is somehow like w- weirdly sympathetic to pedophiles and right. letting them off lightly and whatever. And also acting like, look, I mean, pedophilia, obviously very bad, mm-hmm. very bad, should We're be punished, should be stopped. We all agree that. The, what do you imagine is the percent of cases that come to the Supreme Court that involve pedophilia? Yeah. Like a fraction of Zero. a single percent? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so it's so obvious what it is. And it's so stupid. And it is like, you know, these are uh, d- grown men who do know better. They might be bad people and they might be, you know, dim- dimwitted in some cases. I don't know. But um, these are grown men deliberately signaling to a delusional Absolutely. fraction of society. And it is really shameful to watch. You can have your disagreements. Absolutely. I don't mind people being put, you know. Facing difficult questions, but this is absolute garbage. And and it's it's several in particular. It's Lindsey Graham, who I can't stand. Mm-hmm. It's Ted Cruz. It's uh, Josh Hawley, the the junior nobody from uh, Missouri, and Marsha, uh, what's her name, Blackburn, uh, from Tennessee. Absolutely awful. Now it was it was a pleasant surprise to me to see uh, an editorial in the National Review. Right. That paragon of conservatism Mm -hmm. where they said um, comments from Graham and other Republicans about Brown Jackson sentencing of pedophiles was meritless to the point of demagoguery. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I think that people, the the sort of uh, National Review conservative types, uh, I, I don't know where they have to go right now. No, where, maybe where are they the Libertarian go? Party. I have no idea, but uh, like they really, there are a few people out there going like we, <laughs> we we've been Republicans for a long time. We consider ourselves conservative, and it, this does not represent anything to do with what we understand no. our values to be. And I might not, I disagree with them, but at least there's some principle there. You can have an argument, right? Yeah. I wanted to bring up something that's happening in the Alabama Senate race. Now, most listeners, I would think are probably not terribly interested or don't yet realize that they should be interested. But this is a fascinating story that's unfolding in Alabama. Former President Trump yesterday rescinded his endorsement of Representative Mo Brooks. Um, Brooks is a Trump loyalist and had been way out in front in the polls. This is for a seat being vacated by Senator Richard Shelby. Brooks had been the front runner, but lately he's been falling farther and farther behind the new front runner, who is another Trump loyalist by the name of Katie Britt. Katie Britt is the staff director for Senator Shelby. And Shelby has $6 million left in his Senate reelection account and $14 million left in his Senate PAC account. And he said he was going to give all the money to the Britt campaign. Mm-hmm. So Britt has been pestering Donald Trump to endorse her. And as she's climbed in the polls, Trump started thinking, you know, Mo Brooks is going to lose this race. That's going to make me look bad. I lost the last two endorsements that I did in the Alabama Senate race, the last Alabama Senate race. I'm going to take away my endorsement of Brooks and I'm going to endorse Britt. So he did that yesterday. And Mo Brooks lost his mind. So today, Brooks came out publicly and said that Trump asked him repeatedly in the months after the 2020 election to illegally help him rescind the election, remove Joe Biden from office, and force a new special election. 
this is the first time that a lawmaker who was actually involved in Trump's efforts to invalidate the election has come out and said that Trump asked him to violate federal law. What would a scumbag? Total scumbag. I mean, say this before, you know, know, say this before. Yeah, go seeking this guy's endorsement. And then after he rescinds it, which is very funny. Uh, yeah, to say, oh, I mean, that it's like, is it true or is it not true? Child, right. t- totally believe it. But <sighs> these people. Oh, my gosh. They're bad. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright uh, died of cancer yesterday at the age of 84. Uh, she was the first female Secretary of State, and she had been U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations uh, before being elevated to this to Secretary of State. She was also a longtime professor at Georgetown University, uh, where she taught foreign uh, affairs. Although she served during the Clinton administration, she was known as a hawk, especially on Iraq. And a lot of people, you pointed this out in our meeting earlier today, a lot of people have taken to Twitter and Facebook and other platforms to talk about her role in the Iraq war and in the deaths of what may be as many as a million people, a million Iraqis and a half a million Iraqi children. Mm -hmm. So it's not universal tears. Uh, for Madeleine no. Albright. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people have been playing that clip from from 1996 when she was uh, uh, when Albright was on 60 Minutes uh, and was asked uh, if the price uh, of the war was worth it, referencing those uh, half a million dead Iraqi children. And she said, yes, it was we believe it ultimately is worth the price. What I mean, does anyone remember the the first Gulf War? What were our goals there? Were, was it defending the principle of uh, territorial integrity? I mean, cool. I, I mean, I, I guess we were defending our right to discipline our junior partners when they get out of hand also was, was what was going on there. I, neither things I'd see sort of uh, consistently and universally applied afterwards. So I wonder if she would reconsider that price. But the other thing I, I wanted to point out is that is not the only time uh, that that Albright got some. I mean, you know, it was Leslie Stahl. It wasn't really a hostile interview. Right. Uh, but. There are some other clips going around of Albright being um, taken to task. And, and one is of her at a, I think it's, it's aired by CNN. I think it's a town hall with college students in 1998. And she's asked by a young man about inconsistency in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, for example, selling weapons to countries who commit the same violations that we go to war with other countries to protest, right? And, and Albright, of course, first uh, accuses that student and the ones cheering on the question of supporting Saddam Hussein. Um, And I just bring it up because I think it is important to remember that uh, everyone did not support either of those wars or any any U.S. war. Right. Right. And there is a tendency to act like, oh, well, now now we all know that the 2003 Iraq war was a bad idea. But at the time, who could possibly have imagined how it would go? And I think millions of Americans. Yeah, there was resistance. There's always resistance. And you just don't you don't hear much about it at the time, and you don't hear much about it afterward. And I, I think that, you know, it, it is important to remember that it was there. It just, it, it, sometimes it's small, but no matter what the size, it is it is erased, right? And it's also worth pointing out, if you question inconsistent and, and hypocritical U.S. foreign policy, you will be called a dictator lover. That is, the, that oh, yes. is par for the course. That is what happens. And you might as well just develop a thick skin about it, right? Because otherwise, otherwise they will beat you into submission. And it's great. It is good to see like, no, this is just what happens. I don't have to worry. I, I don't I don't have to worry that I actually do in my deepest soul love Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin or anybody else, right? right? This is just something they say to stop talking to you about the things that really matter. 
Should I should I say my you rattle it all right? So I don't know. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of had a personal beef with uh, with Madeline Albright. Uh, she, I knew I knew her slightly, uh, having briefed her when I was at the CIA many times. Um, but she was very close to a, a good friend of mine, and so he he brokered a lunch for us, and I asked her if she would support my application for a pardon, and she just didn't even want to be in the same building with me as soon as the words came out of my mouth. Yeah. So she she bolted, Gosh. bolted pretty quickly. Uh, we should also say, we meant to say this, I think, at the top of the show, uh, that our YouTube channel oh, uh, yeah. lingered. It lingered for a long time. They hadn't found us for a while, but I guess they have now. So uh, the, the Political Misfits YouTube channel is no more. You can, of course, still stream us on Rumble. It's rumble.com. Uh, slash political misfits. You can go and find us there. And you can, of course, still listen to us on the radio. And uh, we're looking for more uh, platforms to host and stream us. But RIP the YouTube page. It was fun. Yeah. We enjoyed, we enjoyed those chats. And Very another, disappointing. Just a little note before we uh, we dive into the show, and we're going to start with, with North Korea and Ukraine. Um, but of course, uh, President Biden has been meeting with other NATO leaders today. They issued a statement just a couple of hours ago that uh, it just doesn't really, you know, says the usual things, makes the usual condemnations and is only really notable for uh, singling out China to uh, uphold the international order and abstain from supporting Russia's war effort and also to push for more defense spending among NATO uh, countries, which, you know, will inevitably be a windfall for defense contractors around the globe. But otherwise, not so much exciting coming out of that that meeting so far from what I can see. This this thing about expenditures has been an ongoing theme. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and Greece were the only two countries that spent more than 2% of GDP. Um, The Greeks, not because of any other reason other than Turkey. Uh, then the Germans a couple of weeks ago announced that they would increase spending to two percent, but no other no other NATO country does. Yeah, and that's what the United States has so long said they're going pushing. to accelerate that process. That's right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and, of course, talk more about the war in Ukraine. We're going to talk about Lockheed Martin trying to mine the oceans. Yeah, I want to hear about that. Uh, yeah, I think that is wild. We are going to talk about the impact of censoring uh, RT and other programming in Latin America, where it was a pretty significant share of the market. Uh, we're going to talk about a few more domestic issues, including uh, Bernie Sanders gunning for the Major League Baseball yeah. uh, and and a lot more. All of that's going to come up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. President Biden met with NATO leaders in Brussels this morning and then followed up with a meeting with G7 leaders to discuss a continued coordinated Western response on Ukraine. The first session dealt with the NATO military response to the Russian invasion. The second session was reportedly about toughening sanctions. The Russian stock market shook off the news, though, and opened very strongly, up about 12% after being closed for a month. 33 stocks traded for a little more than four hours and ended up 4.4% for the day. 
President Biden later today will announce additional sanctions on Russia, including against all members of the Russian Duma, 40 Russian defense-related companies, and elites who are apparently close to President Vladimir Putin. We're joined from Moscow by Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, we are always glad that you're here. And I want to start, Mark, with uh, with a question about the Russian stock market. It's been closed for a long time. It uh, partially reopened today and just skyrocketed at the opening, up 12 percent. It finished the day up 4.4 percent, at least according to Barron's. How has Russia been able to right that ship, at least for the time being? Um, so, I mean, there there have been a number of measures that Russia has taken, and it has to be noted uh, that, I mean, the stock market has been closed for a month now, yeah. right, essentially. Um, so um, that was right away an effort to uh, reduce panic uh, selling off. Um, a number of other economic measures, including support uh, for countries under sanctions, um, uh, for companies that, that fell under Western sanctions um, and um, the gr- gradual strengthening of the ruble. Initially, after the announcement of Western sanctions, the ruble uh, had lost about half of its value to the dollar, uh, but uh, soon began clawing its way back um, uh, until it was only 25% uh, down from what it had been um, at the start of the conflict. And then uh, yesterday, uh, uh, President Putin announced another measure that uh, any countries that are hostile countries, i.e. countries that have uh, levied sanctions against Russia and are buying energy from Russia, will have to pay for their energy from now on in, in rubles. rubles. In rubles, because he says that Western currencies, uh, the the dollar, uh, the euro, uh, have been uh, lost all credibility uh, as uh, you know holders of of uh, reserve value uh, because of the freezing of uh, Russia's own uh, currency reserves, uh, which uh, they says that is uh, tantamount to theft. Um, and, um, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, over uh, arching control of the global financial system through uh, the dollar and the euro and uh, weaponizing that means that it's no longer safe for any country uh, to to hold its wealth. And as a result, if Europe wants to continue to get energy, which they most certainly do because there are no other alternatives for them, certainly not at the moment, if ever, uh, not not economically feasible, then they will have to pay in rubles, which means that they will be further strengthening the ruble and uh, um, basically having to act against their own sanctions. And it seems that no one was expecting this. So it's kind of left all of all of Europe kind of flabbergasted as as Putin makes another uh, chess move uh, that has them all scratching their chins. You know, the, there was a an interesting statement by uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov yesterday. He gave a speech at the Russian Foreign Ministry to a group of of new diplomats in training, young young people who are preparing to enter the Russian Foreign Ministry, and he said that the ferocity of sanctions took the Russian leadership by surprise. 
And and that was the first time that anybody had had said anything like that. Uh, and he said that's why they've been working so hard to figure out a way to get around these sanctions. It seems that demanding payment in rubles uh, is it's a brilliant move because somebody is going to have to convert Western currencies into rubles if Europe wants to continue getting its gas. Uh, at the same time, the Washington Post uh, reported yesterday and today that there are cracks in the NATO alliance. This is the word they keep using, cracks in the NATO alliance. And then they hinted that it's because of this, this decision to force the West to pay for, for gas with, with rubles. Um, would you agree with that? Is, is this a mistake that the West made, something that they hadn't considered? Okay, well, first of all, if, if anyone in the Russian government didn't expect this severity of sanctions, then I don't know what they were thinking, because <laughs> I, I don't see that the West has made any uh, uh, moves with regards to the sanctions, which weren't talked about and forecast long beforehand. Huh. I'm, 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 I'm a little shocked at that statement, and I, I have to wonder whether it's actually true or it's simply said for uh, public value. Uh, if it was, then then whoever is doing their uh, sanction planning really needs a new job. Uh, <laughs> um, with with regards to this, I mean, this doesn't fit the Western playbook of, of how things were supposed to go. Right. Because the ruble was already supposed to be worthless. Right. Right. The, the ruble was already, I mean, people were already supposed to be, you know, bartering for goods in the street. And I mean, the West has always, not only with Russia, and, and but, you know, particularly the United States has always overestimated the impact of their sanctions and always. underestimated the resiliency of the ruble. Um, and and uh, once again, it, it seems that they could not predict that because the ruble was already supposed to be worthless. And Putin demanding payment in his own currency, which they expect should have been worthless, is just something they 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 probably couldn't have ever conceived of. I think I think you've hit that on the head. I want to ask you. Well. Uh, Last night, I participated in a in a roundtable on Ukraine, and one of the participants said something that was very interesting to me. It's something I hadn't considered. I wanted your thoughts on it. He said that the U.S. media are getting Russian progress in Ukraine completely wrong, that just because Russia doesn't begin an invasion with 30 days of bombing a country back to the Stone Age and doesn't target infrastructure, that doesn't mean that the Russian army is bogged down. It means that they're trying to reduce civilian casualties. But we're still reading that Russia is bogged down. And today's New York Times says that the Russians lost a, a, a landing ship to the Ukrainians, for example. It, it was bombed and is on fire right now. Uh, the New York Times says this points to Russian logistical difficulties, even in territory that it controls. What do you think? Do you think that this that the Russian the Russians are moving according to plan? Or do you think that they are bogged down and not exactly sure what they're doing? OK, well, well, first of all, I, I don't see where I mean, the, the uh, ship that was hit is a landing ship. And uh, by the accounts that have been made so far, it was hit by a Tochka U, a, a Soviet uh, produced uh, or a Soviet designed uh, ballistic missile okay. um, of which at the start of the conflict, Ukraine had some 900 
of these uh, types of missiles uh, and and some 90 launchers. Um, and I think that it 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 shows limitations on the Russian Air Force that they have not been able to take out all of those. Sure. Right. After a month of bombing that that definitely shows some limitations or that that Ukraine has become very adept at hiding them. I mean, uh, certainly the number uh, that they started with has gone down considerably. But um, uh, Russia's Air Force is is obviously somewhat deficient in in this type of thing, as well as um, uh, uh, the uh, Depression of um, Russian of uh, Ukrainian air defense systems, also something that they are not as proficient in. Um, but uh, I don't see where it possibly could have anything to do with logistics, because this was a, a ballistic missile that was fired and and hit the ship. Um, where logistics ties into that, I, I don't see that at all. Russia, again, how they could have avoided that. Um, well, uh, the air defense over Berdyansk is is obviously not fully on line yet. Berdyansk is one of the uh, uh, first uh, small cities that Russia took um, in uh, the Kherson region uh, coming up out of Crimea. It's a port city. Um, but um, other than that, um, you know, again, the deficiency is on the Russian Air Force side. As to, you know, uh, how things are going, this, see, uh, this is uh, – from the very beginning, Russia said that the goal of their military operation is not to take over Ukraine, is not to seize large swaths of territory or to attack major metropolitan cities. Right. And what you have seen is and, – and the, and the West right away said, no, that's what you really mean. And Russia said, no, that's that's not actually what we're doing. And Russia went out and they pursued their goal of demilitarization, i.e. attacking uh, uh, military infrastructure and targets uh, in Ukraine to degrade the Ukrainian military and particularly to degrade military infrastructure that had been refurbished by NATO money for NATO use and uh, also the policy of denazification or to go after uh, the uh, Kiev regime's uh, far-right battalions, uh, Azov, the right sector, C-14, etc., uh, you know, which, which it, it, it regards as, uh, well, odious and, and something that cannot be allowed next door. And, and that's a big reason why Mariupol alone is a major metropolitan area that is undergoing a concerted effort because Azov is headquartered there. Uh, but as for the rest of them, Russia has tried to surround these cities, isolate them while smashing the Ukrainian military's command and control, isolating its forces in the east. And they're actually doing everything that they said they were going to do. Again, I think initially they had a plan for a decapitation strike mm -hmm. that at Kiev that did not work out. But plan B was rolled you know, right into action after that. Um, and uh, it's you know, it's working, you know, maybe not 100 percent. They've they've made mistakes. They've made plenty of mistakes. Uh, but by judging the Russian military intervention on what they said, you know, on what they said they're not going to do and saying, oh, you really meant to do that. And then saying that the military intervention is failing or is stalled because they're not succeeded in doing what they weren't trying to do in the first place is 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 just a propaganda it's it, it, it's pure propaganda and uh, there's an excellent piece in uh newsweek um yes that, uh, there by is William Ark uh that 
uh, it was just out two days ago. Um, and this is a piece where the, the, the storied um, uh, military uh, journalist, uh, Arkin, who himself is a uh, military vet, um, he um, interviews um, a number of top U.S. military officers, Air Force, defense intelligence. Um, and, uh, you know, he says that, you know, uh, Putin, in, he uses, you know, it's the headlines are, are, are terms, of course, where address everything in the terms of the demonized president of the other country. But Putin could be uh, doing much more damage in Ukraine bombing. Right. Yes. And he's explaining why the Russian military is it, it's not the military intervention is not at all like the popular conception that's being presented by the talking heads by the pundits that that Russia is carpet bombing Ukraine and is mass destroying civilians and civilian objects. And they say, actually, it's nothing like that. It's mostly a campaign against military targets. There has been some collateral damage, but there's no evidence at all that Russia is deliberately targeting civilians like that. In fact, they've gone out of their way not to do that. And Russia has actually made very light use of their air power in the first 24 days of their military intervention, they have flown less sorties and fired less missiles than the U.S. did in the first day of their shock and awe campaign in the Iraq war several decades ago. And it's not because Russia doesn't have the capability or the air force, the air power uh, in theater to do that. It's because they're deliberately trying to limit civilian damage, they are not doing a shock and awe campaign and have very had from the very beginning, they've had very restrained use of air power. It has increased over time, but it's still nothing at like what the U.S. did say to Raqqa, to Fallujah, yes. to Mosul, yes. right, to, to Baghdad, you know, a couple decades ago. It's not that type of military campaign. And judging that campaign, uh, Russia's military campaign on on the type, the way that the U.S. wages shock and awe air power or um, the urban combat of total city destruction that we saw in Raqqa, that's not what Russia's doing. And judging it on those standards, you're going to get it wrong every time. Let me ask you about a statement that Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, made today. He said that the U.S. government assesses that Russian troops have committed war crimes in Ukraine and said that this assessment came as a result of a, a careful examination, these were his words, of public and intelligent sources. Um, walk us through this. He didn't say what these war crimes uh, were. Uh, the U.S. doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court. So what, what exactly are, are we looking at here? What, what does the U.S. intend to do? Okay, first of all, may I just say that uh, as a former U.S. military veteran, the a, a U.S. government official accusing anyone but themselves yeah, it's of rich. war crimes—it's—it's it's risable. Oh, right? yeah. it's, it's 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 pure propaganda theater. Um, not only is the U.S. not a signatory to the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute, and by the way, uh, Russia is has also not ratified it, and Ukraine is also not a member. <laughs> oh, for so. Let's let's get by that because there are still our provisions that could be used, uh, you know, to to make war crimes accusations. But um, in order to do that, you have to prove that the country's military was deliberately targeting 
civilians in, in, in what he's talking about. And he did make a reference to this uh, attack on a maternity hospital and a shopping mall where video evidence that has been presented, including by the Ukrainian side's own open source intelligence you know, uh, providers have shown that both of these were being used as military firing positions or arms depot by the, uh, you know, the Kiev regime's forces, which makes them legitimate military targets, mm-hmm. right? So this is this is just absurd. They could never prove this in court. This is just about demonization. And it has to be remembered that it was just a few years ago that the U.S. sanctioned the International Criminal Court. Yes. It's judges, its prosecutors for daring to raise the idea that they might conduct an investigation of America's own military and political leaders over their numerous war crimes, you know, over, you know, the last few decades. So um, I I think you you really have to take, you know, such accusations coming from from Antony Blinken. And notice that this came from the State Department and not from the Pentagon. I I did. The the Russian... Yeah, the the Pentagon in recent day has has dropped has been leaking several things. One, this story by uh, uh, this article by William Arkin in Newsweek, which is talking what the the camp, the military intervention actually looks like from a military export point of view, rather than you know the pundit propaganda. And also, they made a comment that they have no evidence. There's no indication that Russia is uh, planning uh, has any type of imminent chemical. Uh, weapon attack or anything like planned, which is was obviously intended as distraction from the U.S.'s own biolabs that have been uncovered in Ukraine and possibly to provide a, a pretext, uh, uh, you know, a type of false flag scenario uh, to try to draw uh, NATO or the U.S. into the, the war, like, like was done like in Duma with Syria and so on. The Pentagon appears to have been firing some shots some some truth bombs, as Joe Loria at Consortium News posted, in attempt to try to prevent an escalation that could, uh, you know, result in direct NATO-Russia conflict and, of course, a spiral to a World War III type scenario. And what we see is the Pentagon being the rational adults in the room, right? The the peacemakers, actually, the, or at least the restrainers, while it's the Blinken Newland. Um, State Department that are are being clear on warmongers and pushing for escalation and and really pushing, uh, you know, the the uh, Kiev regime, Zelensky, not to accept uh, any terms in peace negotiations, uh, uh, you know, that 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 meet with Russian demands. So I think you see some inter agency, some inter Biden administration fighting between institutions going on that is now playing out uh, in in, you know, some things that have basically been leaked to the press that don't fit the narrative. And they're both coming out of the Pentagon. I want to switch to North Korea real quickly, Mark. We've got about three, three and a half minutes left. North Korea has just uh, tested what appears to be its most powerful ICBM yet, one that's intended to uh, apparently to deliver nuclear weapons and that could well reach uh, the United States, uh, all over the United States. An ICBM launch at one point was a red line for us. Uh, I I guess it's no longer a red line. What do you make of the timing of this launch? We've been expecting it for a few weeks now. And what do you make of the response that it's gotten from the uh, U.S. government? 
Okay, uh, so I mean, the U.S. has really played this. I, I think they've played it down much as as they have played down several other incidents, such as um, uh, Iran uh, targeting uh, an Israeli military base in Iraq because they don't want to be distracted. Uh, you know, from what is going on in Ukraine. So they're ignoring things that they might otherwise pay more attention to. But the timing of this is, I mean, there might be some incidental thing, you know, with the the conflict that's going on that has the world's attention. But there's always a reason. The, the reason why North Korea makes another ballistic missile test is always the same. It's because the, the uh, South Korean government and the U.S. military just conducted military drills, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, on the border with North Korea that, you know, is specifically designed to target them. That That is why always, that is what has yeah. happened. That is the timing. It happened several weeks ago uh, uh, again. And North Korea has always said, you know, stop doing these military exercises with the U.S. You know, we remember the Korean War. We remember the mass carpet bombing of North Korea into the Stone Age. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, we, we, there's still no final peace treaty to end that war. I mean, there's only an armistice. And, and North, the United States has never recognized North Korea's right to exist as a state. And until you stop these military exercises, we're going to continue to uh, test ballistic missiles as our form of response to it. And they do every time. And every time everyone in the U.S. acts, oh, shock, North Korea tested another missile. <laughs> we told you we're going to do this every time you fire a military exercise because, you know, we feel threatened by it. And, and it's ignored every time and no one talks about it. But it, it, it you know, it's like clockwork. Well, I want to ask, Mark, to sort of follow up. The Biden administration, in, in some limited fashion, made it's made some sort of sane comments on North Korea, right? Uh, they offered, you know, when he was coming in, offered a dialogue with no preconditions. Uh, but they are also maintaining this policy of deterrence that you can only describe as an abject failure. If the idea was to deter North Korea from testing weapons or building a nuclear weapon, well, it has not worked. And so I wonder, you know, I, I want to ask what people should, uh, how people should understand an administration that comes in and does give some support to the achievements of the Trump administration in, you know, warming relationships and like achieving some concrete steps when it comes to uh, nuclear development and the like. They say, oh, yeah, OK, that was that was good. We support that. But we aren't going to follow the same path. How should we understand that? You should understand that, that the U.S. is happy with the status quo. Mm -hmm. They do not want a peace between North Korea and South Korea. They are deliberately uh, presenting uh, preventing the South Korean uh, prime minister, whom is very much Moon, who is very much interested in pursuing, uh, you know, some gradual steps towards reunification, because a reunified Korean peninsula would uh, one almost certain geopolitically move closer to China and find greater animosity with its, you know, historical adversary Japan, which is a U.S. ally for control of the region, and then they would lose a rationale for, uh, you know, tens of thousands of U.S. troops in South Korea, which the U.S. does not want right now, as they're getting ready for what they 
they consider an inevitable conflict uh, with China uh, within you know the next 10, uh, 5 to 15 years uh, in the South Pacific. They want those troops there. They want China contained. And uh, peace in the Korean Peninsula would uh, geopolitically be a disaster for them in, in Asia. So that's the way you should read it. I think that's exactly right. I think if you, if you pursue the same policy with the same stated goal for decades and yeah. you, it absolutely fails and you refuse to change tactics, then I think you really have to wonder what is the real goal then, right? Because it doesn't seem to be the status best. quo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much, Mark Sloboda. Always great to talk to you. That was uh, Mark Sloboda, international affairs and security analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about a terrible convergence of three things I had not before connected. And I am talking about mining, Lockheed Martin, and our ocean floors. Sounds very bad. I personally, I had had no idea that Lockheed uh, was was getting into the mining game or taken it nautical. Uh, But now I do know. And I think there is probably a lot of reason to be concerned. Uh, Joining us to explain if that is the case is Emily Jeffers. She's staff attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity at the University of California, Berkeley. Emily, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I I noticed this when uh, I saw your press release. I saw a couple of articles about it, but not too many. But apparently, uh, weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin has applied to extend its existing deep seabed mineral exploration licenses. And so I I was not aware that the company had these licenses mm-hmm. or Nor that was Lockheed I. was involved in mining at all or, or looking to get into it. And as I understand, there is not any, there are not any current deep seabed mining operations underway. Uh, But I wanted to start by asking you what these licenses allow Lockheed to do, even if they haven't necessarily started doing much yet. Yeah. So these are licenses that Lockheed has had for the most part since 1984. And they were issued pursuant to our, um, our domestic regime for permitting deep sea mining, which is called the Deep Seabed Hard Mineral Resources Act which is a mouthful. Um, but anyhow, that's the our domestic legal regime for deep sea mining um, pending adoption of, you know, the United States is not a party to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. There's this whole other international regime that has been moving forward with issuing regulations that will presumably allow deep sea mining on the high seas. Um, the United States is not a party to that, and so we have our own separate um, regime for permitting um, deep sea bed mining. And what Lockheed has are exploration licenses. They are not um, allowed to go and do any at-sea activities at this point. Um, before they move on to the at-sea exploration phase, they would have to do um, some substantial environmental review. So these are all activities that happen on land um, just to pursue their interest in, in maintaining these exploration licenses. And so wh- where are they? I gather they are between 
I saw b- between Mexico and Hawaii. Yes, this is an area that is referred to as the Clarion Clipperton zone. And um, it's an area that has, scientists believe it has a lot of um, deep sea bed minerals, um, primarily polymetallic nodules on the abyssal plains of the deep sea. Um, and so that's why under the International Seabed Authority, um, there have been, has been a lot of interest at, at that, in that scheme for, for securing rights to that area. And also Lockheed is interested under our, our domestic regime. And so like, what would these minerals, I'm curious what these minerals might be used for. Is it just sort of like, well, they're down there, we'll, we'll find something for them? Yeah, these are minerals like copper, cobalt, nickel, manganese that um, are valuable and are used in batteries. And so um, companies are interested in, in potentially in electric cars or other renewable energy, um, you know, reasons. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what they are. May I may I ask too? How how is this cost effective if if the Chinese are already um, mining for all of these minerals? And the the Congolese and the Thais and, you know, the Nicaraguans, how is it cost effective for a private company to go all the way down in in deep water ocean and mine for the same thing? Well, no one is mining in the deep ocean yet. This is all sort of speculative. It's just permittable. I see. Yeah, they're getting permits. They're trying to reserve these rights so that in the future they can go out and get these minerals. There's still just a tremendous amount of unknowns about deep sea mining. Um, we don't know all the impacts to these deep sea ecosystems. But what we do know, we think that it's going to lead to just incredible, irreversible loss of biodiversity in the oceans, and we don't even know the ramifications that we'll have worldwide. Um, but companies, they appear to think that there is potentially, it's very lucrative, but that's, you know, I can't speak. I mean, I would just say like, if the price is high enough, I mean, this is something that's just, this is the example that comes to my mind, but you know, the, uh, the oil extraction in the Caspian Sea, huge, massively expensive project, threw tons of money into it. It was constantly, uh, what was it called? The, the mine, the bed was called Kashagan and it was jokingly referred to as Kashagan because it was so expensive. (laughs) But when oil was very expensive and they believed there was a lot of it under there, uh, there was no reason not to invest tons of money to figure out how to get it from these depths in this very cold environment and pull it up. And so I think it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with just how, how dear these things are and how much countries are willing to pay for them. And I guess it's no more expensive than talking about mining on the moon or mining on asteroids that you see in newspapers and magazines every once in a while anyway. I wanted to ask, Emily, I mean, yeah, you know, I think we we still really don't know a lot about what goes on in our oceans, as I understand. And the, the deeper we go, the less we know. And so I wanted to ask you to elaborate, you know, when it comes to these licenses, what do we know? What do we know would be disrupted by starting activities in these areas? And and what you know, what what would we perhaps uh, lose an opportunity opportunity to learn about? Yeah. Well, I just wanted what you were talking about earlier about, you know, how lucrative this could potentially be. It also made me think about like, well, these companies, if they're not going to be responsible for all the externalities that are imposed on the rest of the world, then it might at some point be cost effective for them to go to the deep ocean. 
because they are not going to be responsible for the incredible loss of biodiversity and, and changes in the ocean's food web, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we think it's really important to really understand what we're talking about here before we allow companies to suck up these these minerals because it's, I mean, we're basically talking about strip mining the ocean floor. And, you know, on, on land, people can see the impacts of, you know, mountaintop, mine, mountaintop removal in West Virginia, for example, and they can be appalled and horrified and there can be some regulatory regime to make sure that this is, you know, less environmentally bad. But in the deep ocean, no one goes down there. It's right. so remote. It's so dangerous. No one is going to know until 20, 30 years down the road, we start seeing these changes in the ocean and think, huh, is this all because of what we did, you know, back in mm-hmm. 25? So I think it's it's just very dangerous because it is so remote and there isn't going to be a lot of observation um, to make sure that we don't allow this to happen until we really understand, you know, what we're talking about. And in terms of like the impacts, there are, so there's different types of mining. There's the the polymetallic nodules that are on the abyssal plains, and that's what I talked about earlier. Um, and then there's also cobalt crusts. These are um, crusts on the seafloor that are rich in cobalt, um, and, and they're primarily found around seamounts, which are biodiversity hotspots. And then the third type is extracting polymetallic sulfides from hydrothermal vents. And, you know, people have probably seen images of these hydrothermal vents and these very, like, uh, worms and other deep-sea sponges and corals and things like that. So the impacts are kind of different for all of these different types of mining. But for the most part, you're stripping the bottom, the seafloor. You're just, like, you're sucking everything up. You're bringing it up to um, some sort of vessel on the surface, and you're filtering out uh, the sediment, and then that falls back to the seafloor, creating these huge sediment plains, uh, plumes. So there's going to be the direct effect of um, stripping the the the, the seafloor um, and leading to potential extinction of species, um, just, just totally destroying deep-sea sponge and coral ecosystems, vents, um, vent habitats. Etc. And then, and then there's going to be the plumes of sediment that will be created as, as the mining stirs up the seafloor, and then as it, you know, the, the sediment filters back down after it's been uh, processed on on the ships. And then there's going to be wastewater with sediment, um, mild tailing, uh, tailings, noise, light pollution. There'll be a lot of vessel traffic that could potentially lead to. Um, you know, disruptions from marine uh, mammals that are migrating. There's just a whole host of, of impacts that we don't entirely understand yet. And also, you know, anytime you disrupt something that has been still and contained for a long time, you release all kinds of stuff to be, you know, to tossed into uh, ocean currents and maybe travel even farther than it could potentially on land, which is mm-hmm. also a terrifying prospect. Oh, yeah. Well, so I wonder if you can tell us who exactly, who's who's got their eyes on this and who is opposing it? Well, there are companies like Lockheed and then there are others before the International Seabed Authority that have gotten licenses. Um, but I will say there have been an increasing number of companies who have um, put their put their hand down, put their foot down, whatever you whatever you want to say. And said we we support a moratorium on deep sea mining, and this includes a lot of car companies that. Probably would be interested in in the technology in the minerals 
make their batteries for electric vehicles. Yeah, just last month, um, Rivian and Renault said, you know, we support a moratorium on deep sea mining. Uh, BMW, Volvo, they have also supported a moratorium and said, we're not going to use minerals that are coming out of the deep sea. So I think there's a real movement towards, you know, a big opposition to deep sea mining. Other companies like tech companies, such as Google, have also come come out and Mm. opposed to deep sea mining. And I want to ask, so this this application to the extent, uh, extend this permit is open for public comment uh, for the next two months. And I wonder uh, w- if that really is a way people can attempt to influence whether it will be uh, renewed or not. If there's some, if, if you think that that is useful or if it's just a way for people to feel that they, they can get their voices heard. I think that people should have their voices heard. And I think that the Biden administration should reevaluate how it wants to um, process these applications. I think that's something also that Congress should potentially evaluate whether or not they want to support um, this regime, this domestic regime that allows for companies to have these exploration licenses. Um, But absolutely, I think that people should make their voices heard. And I also wanted to ask if Lockheed loses this license, because I'm not, uh, you know, you mentioned that there is this sort of American regime and then there is this international regime for, for granting these licenses. If Lockheed were to lose this license, does that mean that that area of the ocean is protected or does that just mean the license is up for somebody else to come and grab? Well, it's kind of complicated because, you know, there there are two arguably competing licensing regimes. Um, there's the United States licensing regime and then there's the International Seabed Authority. Um, and so if Lockheed were to lose its license under our domestic regime, um, that area could potentially be up for grab um, under the International Seabed Authority, which is in the process of finalizing regulations that will potentially lead to extraction in the clarion Clipperton zone. Um, so it's it's still up and I think it yeah, I think to answer your question, I think it still potentially might be in play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of not great. No, <laughs> not the best, no not, not the best news that I want. Although, again, it does seem, as Emily said, uh, there is uh, there does seem to be increasing resistance to this idea of, of mining a place that we don't even really understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily, I, I want to ask you to tell our listeners where they can go if they want to find out more about uh, this topic and more about what happens at the Center for Biological Diversity. Yeah, you can go um, check out our website, biologicaldiversity.org, to learn more about deep sea mining and our campaign against it. There's also uh, a tremendous um, group of organizations that are leading the charge in opposition to deep sea mining called the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, and that is savethehighseas.org. So I think your listeners, yeah, they could they could learn more about this and take steps to, you know, voice their concerns with the government and with the International Seabed Authority. Yep. And hope that those concerns are taken seriously. That was Emily Jeffers, staff attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks so much for joining us, Emily. And with just a couple of minutes left before we close out this hour, uh, you know, there is, again, a trickle of news coming in about Ukraine, uh, the most recent being that the United States has found another billion dollars in new funding. Yeah. Uh, Prepared to provide more than a billion dollars in new funding toward humanitarian assistance for those affected by Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, and again, great, uh, you know, great to see money going not toward uh, weapons, but toward humanitarian assistance. But yes, it seems to be no, absolutely no resistance. 
and to, to pulling out money in, in these quantities. No, no resistance. I'll tell you why this but makes me But when it's ex- extending the child tax credit, absolutely exactly. not. Yeah. A friend of mine posted something on Facebook the other day. Her daughter is a high school chemistry teacher in a public school in our hometown, Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And they're doing a fundraiser to buy just normal things like pens and paper and to replace the chairs. And they need, you you remember being in chemistry in 11th grade, those big tables that you have to sit at. The school district can't afford to buy the students the most basic equipment for public school. But every few days, we find more and more billions of dollars to send to Ukraine. It's infuriating. Right. And which is, again, not to say that uh, one cause is any more or less worthy than another necessarily, but just to say all the posturing about budgets and deficits, and this is simple, we simply don't have it. The coffers are going to run dry, blah, 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 blah. It is, it's all a ruse, right? It absolutely Absolutely. is when they can come up with, with figures like this when they want to, right? It's a matter of, it's a matter of political will. That's right. uh, And, and management. And, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to remember that. All right, we got to go. We will, we'll come back here in in another hour, talk about some more domestic issues. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Senator Bernie Sanders introduced legislation this week that would end baseball's antitrust exemption, which Major League Baseball has enjoyed since 1922. Sanders is a big baseball fan, and he's angry. He told HBO's Real Sports last night, quote, I think the time is now when these billionaire owners should start paying attention to the needs of the fans and to the people of this country rather than just to their bottom lines. We must prevent the greed of baseball's oligarchs from destroying the game. The best way to do that is to end baseball's antitrust exemption. Unquote. In other news, the two New York prosecutors who resigned a few weeks back after working on what was supposed to be a case against former President Donald Trump have said that they resigned because there was clear evidence the former president had committed felonies, but the district attorney had made a decision to not prosecute him. And finally, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative said yesterday that it had reinstated 352 expired product exclusions from U.S. tariffs on Chinese imports. The products included pumps, or include, I should say, pumps, electric motors, car parts, chemicals, backpacks, bicycles, vacuum cleaners, and other consumer goods. We are joined by Brian Doyle. He's a political analyst and a sports enthusiast, and Brian was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and is a former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for joining us. Hey, let's start with baseball. You and I are both baseball fans. Many of us have been appalled by the way things have gone in Major League Baseball over the past several years. Uh, The owners this year locked out players for 99 days in an attempt to break the union. They shut down minor league baseball teams like there's, there's no fallout for anybody. You're a minor league baseball player one day and the next day your team is gone. And then what do you do? 
prices are out of control. You, you take a couple of kids, you know, to the baseball game and you spend $500. Uh, some teams like my beloved and terrible Pittsburgh Pirates uh, seem to not care about winning at all. They just care about making a profit, even if it's a small one. So tell us a little bit about what the big problems are with Major League Baseball and what would Bernie Sanders legislation do to change that? Well, I, first of all, I don't think that it's going to happen. Uh-huh. That proposal is going to happen. I don't think there's enough support for it. It's the old, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And um, in this instance, I mean, I understand uh, from hearing what he said, he, uh, he seems to me to be approaching it as a, as a fan. That's fine. The problem is most people, you know, don't realize major league sports, football, baseball, it's a business. That's the bottom line. It's a business. Yeah. Uh, you, you might have um, one or two owners who, you know, like in, for example, George Steinbrenner, he didn't care. He'll spend, he'd spend anything. And there's a, while they do share te- television revenue, one of the things major league baseball teams don't share is local revenue. For example, the Yankees, um, I remember a number of years back, I remember I was astounded by the figure, and this was a number of years back, I'm sure it's changed since then. It was a $250 million deal that they signed with one uh, the major um, TV network in New York City to carry their game. Yeah. And, you know, that gives them a distinct advantage. I mean, they, they tried to kind of balance this out in most of the professional leagues where if you exceeded a certain cap, you'd have to pay a, a luxury tax. Yankees didn't care. They had the money to do it. Right. Team in Pittsburgh, that's a small market. What do you, and they're, it, what, are, what are they, what are they going to get from the local markets from the radio, media there? That's a smaller media market. That's why the Dodgers are so successful. They've got tons of money, huge markets, not only in the LA area, but they broadcaster games down into Mexico in Spanish. So the disparity, if, if Senator Sanders wanted to do this, propose this, you could force each major league team, I suppose, to take the model of the Green Bay Packers in the NFL. Sure. The only, they're the only community-owned team. Yeah, you, you can buy stock. They had a recent, uh, they raised funds at, at 316 a share. You're never going to see a dividend. All the money's poured back into the team. But, hey, I'm a part owner of the Green Bay Packers. But it, also, because it's a small market team. I think one of the, the, the two brilliant commissioners who had to deal with both owners and players of the last 60 years were Pete Rozelle in the NFL, who was a young guy. Yeah, he was. He came up with the profit, uh, the mutual sharing of money, TV money. So it gave each team a fair shot. And it has worked. Today, it has worked. And um, David Stern in the NBA, when, particularly when by the change in the laws, free agency was declared uh, in the 70s when Andy Messersmith uh, took on the reserve clause. Uh, it changed the game. And I understand what Sanders, Sanders is saying. But at the same time, nobody's, um, I don't see any players giving the money back and nobody's twisting the arms of the owners to give them the money. And if, they, if they're going to pay that much money, even with the TV revenue, which is in the billions of dollars at this point, um, you're going to try to cut your costs in other areas. He's talking about the minor league. I totally agree. I do think that's a big mistake on the part of the major league owners and teams to um, uh, downsize their minor league teams because as any good manager or coach or whatever you want to, whoever it might be, would tell you, the lifeblood of any team is the talent. 
your hometown are they have a very good scouting uh, operation. They develop really good players in general, but they can't keep them because they, they don't mm-hmm. have the local revenue. Um, I, I don't know what the fix is, except if if they perhaps all the teams shared the local revenues, then the Yankees would have to share that huge contract that they have in New York with Pittsburgh, with Washington, or whoever it might be. Yeah. I, I think that's I think that's right. I want to switch topics and go to this um, this New York uh, Trump investigation story. The two prosecutors who made news by resigning from their investigation uh, against Donald Trump are now saying that they resigned because Trump had committed obvious felonies. Those are the the words that they used. But that the Manhattan, the, the Manhattan district attorney had made a political sex, uh, sorry, a political decision to not charge him. Uh, the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, said that the case is ongoing. And so he wouldn't comment to The New York Times today. Trump would be the first president charged with crimes after leaving office. And these crimes, I actually looked it up today. They're weird crimes like failure to file business uh, papers, which I didn't I never heard of that crime before. Um, they're specific to New York State. Where where does this case go from here? Is it dead? Is it finished? Because clearly, in a case against a former president, no matter who it is, uh, it's going to be political by nature. So is this over? No, I, I don't think it is in, in a different way. Um, I, I had wondered at the time when Cyrus Vance eventually stepped down, Cyrus Vance Jr. stepped down. Yep. At journey, and Mr. Bragg took the case over where it was going to go. I thought, I'm wondering, because I kept saying, is he going to continue it? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. He said it's going to continue. But I will say this. Um, I've watched a lot of cases over the years, and, um, and, you know, in my days in the news business and so forth. I I cannot remember, and, and most legal experts now that I've heard talk, uh, speak about it, uh, said it's incredibly unusual for prosecutors to resign over something like this. Wow. So, you know, we don't know what's there. Bragg says it's ongoing. And then when you tie in the fact that Vance's office was sharing um, evidentiary um, information that they had gathered with uh, State Attorney General Letitia James. Right. Who has specifically said in her campaign, uh, if you like me, I'm going to take a look at Donald Trump. And she certainly has and continues to. So, you know, if let's just say hypothetically brag back off possibility, you might just say, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to, you know, well, that doesn't stop her. Right. Right. And, and presumably those those charges that would have been brought by the Manhattan D.A. could be taken up by Letitia James. Absolutely correct. In addition to the fact that one of the things she's looking into is um, the allegations that he undervalued uh, for purposes and overvalued for purposes his properties to get the loans. That that is a big one. Yeah, that's a pretty serious felony. I think you would agree that uh, most people, you know, in this country, we pay taxes and they get really ticked off if somebody isn't there their fair share of taxes. You know, we've seen it in many, many cases. Yeah. And that, that, if you're taking a poll, that one's a, that one's a red button for sure, for sure. Can I jump in here? It's just, so, it's so difficult to talk about 
anything uh, having to do with Donald Trump, Trump and his <laughs> Trump, Donald Trump and his, you know, various uh, alleged and real uh, crimes and and offenses because it's it's so political, right? Everything about it is so political, and there's so much of a sort of haze around it, and and it it also becomes very personal, right? Like it's very odd. Alvin Bragg is not someone who you would think is going to come in and try to cover no, up he's, for, he's for not a person these, like Donald Trump. He's not. Yeah. He's accused of being too too left wing, right? Guys, like too. Right. Yeah, he wants to. You know, he was trying to revise sentencing and, and and that kind of thing. Also, you know, I imagine there's a lot of political pressure to not to not have simply failed to make a good enough case against Donald Trump. You know what I mean? There's there's going to be a lot of pressure to yeah. walk away and go, no, 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 it's not it's not it's not that we didn't have anything. Uh, you know, obviously he's a bad guy. We, you know, we're on the same team, everything else. It was a, so I'm I'm wondering like the. I don't, it's not really a question, more of an observation that this this entire atmosphere is so uh, politically poisoned that there's all sides have motivations that they might not necessarily have in another case. And it makes it very difficult, again, to go, was this guy committing financial crimes? And if he was getting, committing financial crimes, is he committing financial crimes that are not like ah, the crimes that everybody's kind of doing all along? And again, I say this as someone who has said, I, you know, I would bet you quite a lot of money that you will find a lot of financial crimes if you go looking through Donald Trump's affairs. It's not like I'm suggesting that I think personally that he is a, a straight shooter. But, you know, the, there is also the reality of the political situation today. And I wonder what, you know, what do you think? How do you think this perhaps distorts all of these stories? Yeah, well, you can't help get away from the fact. I mean, the guy was president of the United States. Uh, it's going to be political. Yeah. And in Bragg's case, you know, maybe that is his interpretation. It could just be a absolutely flat, you know, strong disagreement between the prosecutors who were working on the case and Bragg as he now has an overview of it and views with the evidence that they have, they have gathered. In addition, I don't say this to, I'm not criticizing Mr. Bragg about this. You know, psychologically, you come into a new job, particularly one with one of the biggest profiles in the country in New York. You want whatever you do initially to be a success. Maybe he's, he's maybe he isn't confident that there's enough to even prosecute and get a conviction. And he can make that decision, but we don't know that. Know that. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. But the political side of it is is there. I mean, Letitia James clearly. I mean, that was right from the get go in her her campaign when she ran for attorney general of the state of New York. So, Which doesn't mean all, that anything that she said is wrong also, right? Sure. And the two things can both exist, yeah. Absolutely. There can be two truths at the same time and not alternate facts as some people have. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hey, let's switch over to these these tariff uh, exclusions. Uh, th- this is a little bit complicated. Donald Trump put heavy tariffs on China early in his term. Uh, these tariffs expired on more than 700 products. And now the U.S. trade representative has exempted 352 of them. So my first question is why? Why not just renegotiate the tariffs? I, see, I know what you're saying. And they may well. They may well. Uh, the reason I, I, I believe that is I think you have to start from the, the slate from before. I mean, the two biggest economies in the world are intertwined. Yep. That's why it's in our interest and the Chinese interest to the U.S. interest, not ours, but U.S. interest and Chinese interest to work things out. I think we'd all agree that President Trump tended to be a somewhat heavy hand with regard to this and, you know, impulsive in many ways. The new uh, USTR uh, representative, Captain Tai, who I have heard a great deal about her over, over the course of recent years. I uh, know people who had worked at Commerce and knew a lot about her. And she is, 
a very tough negotiator. In addition, she has her own set of views on this. Uh, recently, there has been some back and forthing with the White House and her office on this, and she has stood her ground. Uh, she felt she was being minimized in that regard. And, you know, it's a bit of a turf battle. It, you know, we, we know this happens. It's for real. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is you're, you're also tied into the political reality. We know that because of the pandemic and shipping problems and cost of shipping problems, there's been a global shortage of a lot of things. Oh, yes. It relates to automobiles, not just chips, but parts and so forth. And these other products. Um, that may be a sub, subterfuge to it. I'm not sure. But I think that Ms. Tai, uh, in the long run, will probably sit down and renegotiate a lot of this to get back to the, I guess you would call it, a, what was perceived as a balance prior to President Trump's. Ah, OK. So that's my next question. Is the goal then to go back to the kind of trade relationship we had during the Obama administration where there was more of a balance? Is that is that where USTR is trying to go? I think that in my 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 perception of it is yes. But that's not to say there won't be changes or the other some tariffs may stay in place or even be raised. I you know, would it be it wouldn't be I don't think it's gonna be a huge number of products. But I think there might be some. You know, there's this new bill that's going to be maybe even voted on uh, uh, next week or two, the China, China competitiveness bill. And I think part of that is to bolster American industry to compete with the Chinese in certain areas, uh, including more money uh, to companies, uh, either startups or existing companies for uh, chip production. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's tied politically, yes, it always is going to be, and it's tied um, foreign policy-wise. So uh, it, it, the next six, eight months, maybe longer, maybe next year, uh, I think that'll shake down, and we'll, we'll have a clearer picture of where it's going. But I do think you're right. I think they're going to try to go back to get a more semblance of a balance from the Obama years. I wanted to ask you about the plethora of new abortion legislation that we're seeing around the country. Many states believe that the days of Roe v. Wade are numbered. They're coming to an end and that the Supreme Court will overturn that decision soon. And they want to have laws ready that would restrict or ban abortion. We've already seen this in states like Texas, Florida, Alabama, yesterday, Oklahoma, day before yesterday, Idaho, Utah. Uh, some of them are so restrictive that as the law stands now, they can't possibly be un un I'm sorry. They can't possibly be constitutional. That's not the the issue. The issue is these states want to have them ready so that they can then pass them as constitutional measures. Either way, this is a trend. Um, how do you see it playing out? Well, if you if you look at it from a political standpoint, again, look at those states. The red states have voted consistently yep. Republican. And if you look at, you know, New England, Massachusetts, New York, and so forth, those states vote blue. Their abortion laws are different. And uh, it will come down to the Supreme Court. This is going to be the, the big ballgame because that Mississippi case will have a huge effect on yep. it. And some of those other states have copied not only the Texas law, but the Mississippi law. And it's going to be, you know, they want to have this. This has been a strong push by 
anti-abortion activists uh, or pro-life, as they like to be called, for years. To uh, they they saw that they lost at the national level with the Supreme Court. You know, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, Herbert Walker Bush, George W. They, you know, they kept waiting for them to push justices that would overturn it. Well, Trump has done that, much. and um, they're in a situation now where they think. And they organize at the local level. You know, power can rise below. And they've they've been extremely active in these states. And even in states that whose uh, abortion laws are a little different, like the state of Maryland, where I live, there's a very strong uh, pro-life legislative lobbying group. So it'll it'll depend on the Supreme Court. You know, is is it are those laws legal, constitutional? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. That that. I think everyone is looking toward June when those decisions are usually handed down. Right. Uh, for the court adjourns is going to be the big, uh, big ball of wax. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I want to uh, stay along these lines. Uh, there is companion legislation in a lot of these states related to trans youth and trans um, athletes. Republican governors in a lot of states have been pushing anti-trans legislation. But just in the past few days, the Republican governors of Indiana and Utah have vetoed bills that would have restricted trans athletes from competing, for example. Uh, The governor of Utah said yesterday that trans teens have such a high suicide rate that he didn't want to be responsible for making that any worse. What are your thoughts on that? Because I I think that this is... This is one of those battles of the culture war that has not yet come to a head, but it, it sure looks like it's getting there. It has not resolved itself. You're absolutely right. I, I refer everyone to read a wonderful column by Sally Jenkins, the wonderful sports writer columnist for the Washington Post of a day or two ago, with regard to uh, Leah Thomas, the, the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania, who just won uh, the 500 meter at the NC championship. She, the point she made, she talked to any number of, you know, researchers, bio, biologists, so forth. You know, what makes up a person? We don't know. We still don't know. You say, oh, you're a man, you're a woman. Well, it's not quite that way in reality. That's why I was amused by uh, Senator uh, Marshall Blackburn's question to uh, the nominee for the Supreme Court. Oh, uh, could you define a woman? What What is a woman? I mean, right. But as everyone knows, uh, and, I, and I hear it from my five older sisters. Now, everyone is born female, but hormones take over, and then the males develop. That's what happens in the womb. Well, we don't know. We don't know. Um, I think so far, the record has shown that in competitions where there's some doubt of trans athletes or uh, genetic uh, Kester uh, Samea, I think it is, the South African runner, well, she's very good in competition. She is and has competed, I believe, in the Olympics. She didn't win anything. It doesn't mean you're automatically going to win because, you're oh, you have male hormones. Trans youth are taking female hormones to transition. So in essence, in essence it's going to weaken you. It, it, the playing field's even. I, I don't get it. It's a culture war craziness that has been exploited by what I really consider extremist uh, politicians. One of them, in my humble opinion, Senator or Governor DeSantis in Florida, who the other day proclaimed that the swimmer at the University of Florida who finished second to Leah Thomas yeah. is the real NCAA. Right, 
Right. And, you know, an interesting thing about that, I actually looked this up yesterday. There were two other races that day that Leah Thomas participated in. And in one, she finished fifth and the other, she finished eighth. And nobody's talking about those races. Oh, no. Wouldn't want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I duly noted that too. It's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, this is the thing that uh, that activists point out, which is that like it, it, we've gotten to a point where trans uh, trans women are allowed to compete, but we're not yet comfortable if they if they win. And yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think that there are measures in place to you know we we we've decided on some hormone thresholds, we've decided on some lengths of time that you have to you know post transition times. Uh, that have already been determined to allow you to be eligible. And then, you know, I think I, I, I think this is probably this is the best that we can do right now. And maybe people will continue to, uh, to you know, there will continue to be new data and people will continue to, to tinker with what exactly those thresholds are. But, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of things, a lot of sort of random physical characteristics go into making someone uh, a great athlete. Right. And I don't think necessarily the threshold for trans women to compete is to uh, ensure that they also have absolutely no natural gifts. You know what I mean? Like to to create a scenario where no one is allowed, no one is allowed to compete because they might be good. And also to just assume that testosterone is is going to make you more testosterone is going to make you better at everything. You know, I, I read something else interesting yesterday um, talking about Michael Phelps. They said that Michael Phelps doesn't have a normal male body either. He's able to hyperextend his um, shoulders and his ankles. He has double the webbing <laughs> on his feet that the normal man has. And there was something else that that's just kind of a fluke of of human physiology. So do we do we ban Michael Phelps? Do yeah. we put an asterisk Some next to Michael to Phelps' name? Things. Yes, exactly. I, I happen to be fortunate enough to uh, have worked. Uh, covering the uh, 84 Olympics in LA. And I went to the swimming venue. I had a day off. And uh, there was a West, a then West German, this is before the unification of Germany, swimmer, uh, whose name escapes me, but he was six, seven. And he had enormous reach from fingertip to fingertip. Right. He was known as the Albatross because he was so big. And he was a gold medal winner. Well, nobody could compete with the guy because he was so damn big. And the bigger an object in the water is, as it moves through the water, it'll move faster. So he had, he not only was tall, but he had huge reach and pull himself through the water. And, and it was just, you know, that's just physiology. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think you are right from the standpoint that uh, we may, you know, further research is being done on this. This is the best we can do right now. But I, I, I applaud the governor of uh, Utah for uh, vetoing that bill because it's more than just trans youth participating in sports. Yeah. Is a that's right. Rate. And, you know, we all been through high school and high school can be very cruel. And if other people there are picking on somebody, it's going to have an effect. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. One last question for you. Uh, I, I'd like for you to to go back to your homeland security days. The U.S. announced today that it would, it would accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Um, can you tell us what the what the standard operating procedure is for something like that? Um, are refugees uh, not just resettled, but then put on a path to to citizenship? Is this temporary until they can go back to their own country? How are they distributed around the United States? How does this work? Well, my understanding of it was, and I I didn't really work 
in that area. That I'll be honest with you, at, at, during my days there, uh, and mostly, obviously, we were concerned with the southern border. We sure. I, from what I can, re- what I've read and perceived, uh, it's going to be like kind of a threefold, as you say. Some will probably want to stay. Some may want to go home. We don't know. Don't know yet. And it d- depends on events in the Ukraine uh, to see what happens. I know that they will uh, extend those. You know, if they want to stay here longer, if the war goes on longer, they'll probably extend it. You know, I we did something like that. If my memory serves me right. During the war in El Salvador, that people ah. had, uh, violence and so forth when the war was going on there. And uh, I, I, I don't think it was to the extent that of what we're doing now, but um, it, 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 it strikes me in my head that uh, in the aging recesses of my mind, that uh, that was done then. But it's, I think this has happened so fast and it's caused such a disruption, yeah. migration, uh, fleeing the war that I think policy is actually probably being developed right now. Yeah, I read this morning that that we've already seen the greatest movement of refugee children since the Second World War, which is just incredible to me. Well, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Brian Doyle. Brian's a political analyst and sports enthusiast who was the assignments editor at the at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou with a couple more stories that have been catching our eye before we bring on our last guest. Uh, and yeah, John, we were just talking about a story that is blowing up on Twitter. That's I don't crazy. know. It's hard, to, it's hard to be exactly sure what is going on, but it is possible that the uh, UK Minister of Defense uh, was, uh, was pranked and has said some pretty inflammatory yeah. things on a, uh, uh, by a, a prankster. There are a couple of these uh, Russian pranksters. This one was apparently pretending to be the U.K. prime minister. But look. Or this, the Ukrainian prime minister. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was pretending to be the Ukrainian prime minister. Um, you know, we'll, we will see. Right. I don't want to be I don't want to be uh, trying to do the show and also figure out if how much <laughs> of this is real. But uh, so pretty, pretty embarrassing for the U.K. And he said some pretty inflammatory things. The other story that I wanted to actually talk about is this um, report that was in the Washington Post this morning that almost three quarters of U.S. counties reported more deaths than births last year. That is wild to me. Seventy five percent of U.S. counties, I think it was two thousand three hundred counties, had more deaths than birth, uh, which one expert quoted by the Post said is unheard of in American history. Yeah. this, of course, has something to do with the, the COVID pandemic, right? The, the pandemic itself, the people who died of COVID, the people who died uh, perhaps as a, you know, the, the excess deaths, related, not directly re- related to COVID, but indirectly related to it. Opioid but, uh, deaths among young people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Suicide rates. Suicides up dramatically. Ah, oh, so sad. But the other thing that 
I think is interesting and is worth talking about is the low birth rate, right? I mean, I think that birth rates are also, birth rates have also been trending downward. And uh, there has been, I'm trying to find uh, the information in this story about it. But, you know, we, we've talked about this off and on, on on the show for a while now. It's so expensive. It's so expensive to have a child in, in the United States. There's no support. There's no financial support. There's no social support. I mean, there's no uh, employment. There's no support for, for maternity leave. There's just, it's, it is more and more difficult. It and really I think is. it does affect it does affect people's decisions as to whether or not to have children. And yes. so you have this sort of colliding uh, birth rates down, death rates up situation. And there's nothing, you know, we, we show no signs of reversing this trend necessarily. No. Joe Biden talked a big game about extending the child tax credit, which he did temporarily and is now absolutely stalled as a result of uh, partly his own party. Um, but yeah. No talk of universal health care. So, you know, you've got to be working if you want to be able to pay for your health insurance for you and your child. Nobody gives health insurance if you work part time. So then you've got to be working full time. You've got to be in pay, you know, make enough money to pay a, a caregiver or it's just it's overwhelming. I don't know how it would be possible for people the age of my children. I, I have. I have a 29-year-old, a 26-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 10-year-old to be able to live in the neighborhood in which they grew up. Um, you know, we live, I, I rent now, I don't own, I don't have any money, but um, we live in a neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia, that has always been a middle, middle class, you know, kind of typical close-in suburb neighborhood. Uh, it was heavily Vietnamese until the 1980s and uh and prices went crazy uh you you need now in my neighborhood you can't buy a house and i'm talking about you know a normal 2000 square foot nothing special house built in the 1930s or 1940s you can't touch one for under 2 million dollars and it's and they're on postage stamp size lots you live in Washington, D.C., in a neighborhood that is trendy and fun and has fun restaurants and all. When I first moved to Washington, it was so dangerous up there that you, you really didn't go there at night. Yeah. Now it's so expensive. I couldn't afford to buy a place in that neighborhood. Yeah. So if you're 17 years old and getting ready to go to college or 22 and just getting out of college and you want to start your life, you're going to have to move 30 miles outside of town and sit on an interstate highway commuting in every day yeah. because you can't possibly afford to to live anywhere near the city. No, I'm looking now at birth rates and I'm looking at some of these articles. Uh, the U.S. birth rate, this is according to uh, Econofact, uh, has declined. It, it hit a high in 2007. It had a little burst. Declined 20 percent. What? Since 2007. Since 2007, Apparently. so you can't blame this on COVID. No, you cannot. This is the this is the birth rate, and you can watch it. You can watch a very steady decline. Wow. Uh, you know, with like a couple, you know, even out for a couple of years, tick back up, and then down, down, down. It's a uh, wow. Yeah, and I think you have to point you have to point to uh, a lot of economic factors in this. Definitely. Yeah. The other, uh, <laughs> maybe this is related. This is a terrible story in in the Guardian. Uh, Microplastics. Oh, yeah. Microplastics, this is a those nasty little things, uh, have been detected in human blood 
for the first time. And it, it not it doesn't seem like it's an anomaly because the, the study found tiny particles in almost 80% of the people that they looked into. Oh, my literally God. Literally looked into. Yeah. It, this is according to the Guardian's write-up here, shows the particles uh, can travel around the body. They can lodge in your organs. Uh, the impact on human health is as yet unknown, but researchers are concerned that these plastics could damage your cells. Uh, they do that in the laboratory. In lab settings, they damage cells. Uh, and, uh, you know, anytime you start damaging cells, you perhaps trigger yeah. trigger them to become cancerous. They can also come into your lungs through your mouth and uh, cause so what do you do? millions stop of respiratory eating problems. I mean, maybe we stop making plastic yeah. is well, yeah. step one. Yeah, like, yeah, stop making right. plastic, stop using plastic, which the U.N. agreed to. The U.N., a couple of weeks ago, they agreed to work for the next couple of years on a treaty that would limit the production of plastics. You know, when I was working on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff, the um, the cafeteria at the Senate uh, decided to do away with plastic food containers. And they they introduced these new containers that were made out of cornstarch. And they had this really weird, off-putting texture, right? But we're going to have to just get used to it, right? So like, you know, soup bowls and uh, and cutlery and disposable uh, cups and stuff like that. We're just going to have to get used to it. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. That's fine. Or paper. Or paper. I'm I happy mean, to do it. I think there has also been work for a long time on a on a technological fix, right? On a on the microbe that can eat plastics. Every couple of years, right. I feel like there's a headline announcing yeah. a new I've seen a that. new step toward this kind of thing. And that might be. I mean, that might be the only way to reverse this because it's not like the plastics are going to i don't i don't know what is the life of plastics to bio biodegrade oh, like thousands of years yeah, yeah. you know there's this plastic floating island or this i should say floating island of plastics in the uh pacific ocean mm-hmm. and it's larger than the size of texas so yeah. it's not like you can just scoop it up and recycle it nope it's pretty pretty grim wow yeah yeah, this is scary stuff. The other thing I wanted to mention, I, did, I don't remember if we yeah. talked about this in the office or if we talked about it on the show, but about Brittany Griner right. and uh, the embassy saying or the cons- consulate saying that they had gotten to see her. I don't remember if we I, we said this on air we, or not. We may have briefly mentioned it on air, but mm-hmm. she, she did have a consular visit yesterday or the day before. And... Um, and the the embassy said in its statement that she was doing as well as could be expected. Yeah, found her to be good in condition. They will continue to do everything we can to see to it that she's treated fairly throughout this ordeal. Um, apparently, some people have been noticing how quiet her family has been and have, you know, s- suggested they try something else and launch some kind of pressure campaign. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't that. know that I would. I think this is the right strategy. To just remain silent and let the professionals work behind the scenes and do what they're paid to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, other news that I, I mentioned uh, a little bit back was uh, this, the sort of oddity of having Kyrie Irving yeah. sit out home, right. play we talked away about games that last week. and sit out home games yeah. because of the workplace vaccine mandate at his place of work in, the, in that stadium. And, you know, but that was not in place for for visitors or guests. Right. So he could come and be a spectator. You could be a traveling uh, opponent. Right. But you couldn't actually play at your home (laughs) games. Uh, Apparently, 
New York Mayor Eric Adams is going to announce today, and this is from this morning, so I'm not sure if it has happened yet, but uh, he was going to announce an exemption from the city's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for private employers that will let um, that will let athletes now play. So he'll be able but to again, play again. Okay. I mean, it, it, he's going to lift the, the mandate specifically for performers and athletes in New York. This is the, the scoop by Politico. While while leaving it in place for other workers. That and this make any is sense. where, you know, I am not necessarily I am not anti-vaccine. I am not necessarily anti-mandate. But it is these kinds of uh, it, it is steps like this. Yes. That make people go, OK, yes, we really are in a situation where there is a, a level of freedom for the privileged few. And there is uh, enforced compliance for the rest of us. Right. And people were pointing it out in a sort of uh, less impactful way when you were talking about uh, Obama's birthday party, for example, or some of these big parties where, you know, they said, oh, well, it doesn't matter that everybody was gathering there unmasked because this is a sophisticated crowd. What I was is like, that's, that supposed that's tasteless to and, and stupid. Yeah, but like, whatever. I don't care if people were masked at Barack Obama's birthday party or not. But this really is. You know, some categories of workers uh, and in the case of NBA players, the ones that make millions of dollars, you don't have to comply with this mandate to do your job. But other people, you know, there's still a federal regulation in place that you have to wear a mask on public transport, buses, subways, in airports, on airplanes. And I've seen a huge difference in the number of people over the past two weeks or so who are defying that regulation. Mm -hmm. Like it, it used to be. Well, as recently as a month ago, you would never see someone on the subway without a mask. Mm -hmm. Never. Mm -hmm. In the last few weeks, you might spot one, maybe. And who knows? Maybe they just forgot to put it on. Today, there were four people on my subway car without masks. And they were smiling at each other, like defiantly. Yeah. No more masks. Well, they probably were doing it as as a group. Yeah. No. No. They were in different parts of the train. But when you could see when they were making eye contact. They were like, "Uh uh-huh, you too. No more masks. That's funny. It was shocking to me. Yeah. But I wonder if that's the path we're we're headed down now. People have just had enough. Yeah. I mean, this story points out that Adams recently fired 1,400 teachers, sanitation workers, uh, housing employees, and police officers for failing to be vaccinated. Yeah. And uh, it is unknown how many People in the private sector have also been fired, again, for, for refusing to comply with uh, with these mandates. Adams had said before that he didn't want to make exceptions for wealthy athletes because it would send the wrong message, as as it as it does. Yep. Unless, again, yep. you're going, OK, you know what? Never mind. It's pandemic's over. We don't need right. these mandates. Uh, they're, they're not that important. Even again, as we as we <laughs> anticipate a surge of this new subvariant. Which is, again, as we've talked about all week, going to make most people who get it not very sick, but the very same people who have been vulnerable the entire time. That's right. Will get him sick. Uh, sick. So yeah. it is just hard to it is increasingly the, the logic just is not there. All right. We are going to move on to a, a new topic. We got through those headlines that were that were burning us up. Uh, this is something that I have been interested in uh, for a while now. We've talked about the censorship of, of RT and, uh, and Russian-funded media in the United States, in the UK. But it has also been censored in um, Latin America. And that is a part of the world where it made up a much more significant oh, chunk yes. of, of the media landscape. And I really, I, I was made aware of this by an RT Espanol reporter, Elena Villar, 
who has been tweeting about it because I just had not realized uh, how great its reach was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so because of that, how great the impact of its loss will be. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. We're joined now by Dennis Rogatia. He's a researcher, journalist, and international editor at El Ciudadano. And also he's published in The Gray Zone. Uh, Dennis, thanks for joining us. Hello, Michelle. Uh, John, it's great to be, well, it's great to be back on Sputnik. Welcome back. Um, I wanted to just set the stage here and for you to remind us what is the state of restrictions on RT Espanol across Latin America, right? I, I understand that the channel has been banned by YouTube. I see that its TV signal has been restricted. So how accessible is RT Espanol now? Well, uh, Michelle, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question. Uh, I would say that, uh, and it's and the whole sort of censorship against uh, RT, against Sputnik, against other uh, 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 media organizations which are affiliated to the Russian government uh, has it really has had a very different response here in Latin America when, when we compare it to let's say uh, to Europe and to uh, United States and Canada. Uh, now, as you mentioned, yes, indeed, uh, the, the the signal uh, of RT has been blocked in YouTube, and also it's it is uh, now impossible to actually view RT uh, live in YouTube as well. However, we must uh, it must be made made clear that uh, this was not done by any any of the governments of the countries in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was done by YouTube uh, by the corporate uh, by the corporate officers mm-hmm. there without any consultation with the you know with the governments in Latin America uh, or anything or, or any of the media watch bodies so to speak, which normally you know normally would be the, would be the case legally. So so literally what you, what you had is it. You had the headquarters, the corporate headquarters, basically pulling the plug on one of the on, on the most watched news channel in Latin America, simply because they were, they were kind of they were pushed towards this this decision by the U.S. government. So if you so if you want to the dictatorship being imposed by the by the corporate powers, this is the perfect example. Yeah, I think that is a really good point. This is a corporate decision made by, you know, at the behest of the United States, not with no input from local watchdogs or local governments. In in fact, uh, I think one of the best examples of, you know, comes from uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who, cle- who, who stated very, uh, very clearly uh, during one of uh, you know, morning addresses that uh, he, he found were completely to any kind of uh, censorship of RT or, or any other uh, channels affiliated to the Russian government, because this goes against it. Uh, you know, actually goes against the country's uh, the constitution, which defines uh, Mexico as a as a neutral state which does not intervene in the affairs of other countries. And this and the censorship of um, of the Russian of, of Russian media is considered to be just that, you know, an intervention by the U.S. government into the into the affairs of not just another country, but you know, into the affairs of of the international media, uh, and the responses from other 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 leaders in Latin America have actually been, have been quite similar. Uh, uh, we've in say countries like say Cuba, Bolivia, uh, Nicaragua, um, uh, Argentina, others uh, still maintained uh, the RT channel. So there has been. Uh, there has been no uh, actual no attempts to censor the uh, RT in Espanol uh, signal on on television, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. So uh, so mostly it's mostly RT in Espanol has 
is still up and running uh, across across most of the region. It's also been interesting to see that, uh, but even the in the, even in the remaining right wing uh, countries such as uh, Colombia, uh, for example, I believe even in that case uh, the uh, the uh, RT in Espanol signal is still available. Although you might, although I might, don't don't, don't take my word mm-hmm. <laughs> on that. But. Yeah, and it's not just it's it's not just RT, right? Uh, uh, Latin American reporters pointed out that Redfish has also been dropped by YouTube and Facebook. Uh, a reporter on Twitter was saying, you know, we we are losing documentaries that were made by people from this continent about the, their own countries that have nothing to do with this war in Europe. Uh, often they were about mobilizations and uprisings here. They highlighted the perspectives of, of protagonists involved in ongoing revolutionary processes. And I think, you know, I will point out it, you know, that is something that I think uh, RT and Redfish ha- had done a lot is just highlighting perspectives that, that you don't necessarily see that, again, have nothing to do with this conflict in Ukraine right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, yet this is uh... <sighs> Yet, yet I believe that uh, this sort of, uh, you know, this this kind of a, a mass, uh, uh, this, okay, this kind of this mass offensive against uh, uh, the Russian uh, Russian funded media is not something that I that I feel like just simply happens spontaneously. Because we've actually seen evidence of, uh, you know, of this kind of this slow creeping censorship being applied against against Redfish, against RT Play, against RT, against Sputnik for quite some time now. Uh, uh, for example, the uh, Redfish channel in um, in Instagram and in Facebook have actually has actually been censored before uh, several times. Although yes. each time it was uh, it was it, it was only just you know kind of temporary uh, censorship. So in 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 some sense, I believe that uh, this this is this has certainly been pre-planned, and uh, the censorship attempts against channels like Redfish, you know, they they were done before, but they were done in a way of like you know like testing the water. Uh, seeing you know, seeing the response from uh, from the organization, seeing the response from uh, from the followers, and now that uh, now that the U.S. government had, has had this was given this you know this huge chance of of uh, of waging a uh, waging an economic, political, and psychological war against Russia, you know it's going it's going all guns out against uh, not uh, like you said, not just you know any. Uh, any media that you know, supports Russia, but rather any media that has benefited from uh, their cooperation with the, with the Russian government. So it's it's so so it's a, it's a, it, it really is you know if you're not with me, you're against me. Right. kind of uh, mentality. Yeah, exactly. Which we see you know reflected in a lot, a lot of different ways here. What has been the response from the public? Uh, because again, I see anecdotally that uh, RT Espanol, some RT Espanol journalists have seen a surge in their personal social media followers, right, of their accounts where they post their work. And so I would guess from that that the appetite for this reporting remains, despite uh, you know her work and that of others being tarnished. So what? How has the the public across Latin America responded to uh, seeing these channels be dropped? Well, I would say that in some ways the censorship attempts against uh, RT, in some ways they they have certainly backfired amongst the Latin American public because RT uh, was was kind of seen as a uh, not simply as a uh, as a news that's more trustworthy than you know the the mainstream uh, channels in Latin America, but also uh, a, a channel which gave you know radically alternative take on on the international issues that uh, many of the Latin Americans have been seeing. 
uh, that they see every, every day. What's what's also um, what's also important to note is that uh, the audience for Latin, for uh, RT and Espanol is also quite um, syncretic. I would say uh, that is uh, as a large share of audience among people who consider themselves left wing, who consider themselves to be conservative, who consider themselves to be, you know, uh, centrist liberals. Simply, uh, simply, simply because it's uh, like I said, it's, it, it, it is a channel which genuinely offers offers a different perspective on the issues that uh, happen around the world. And for that reason, uh, for that reason, uh, the Many of the reporters and many of the uh, you know personalities associated with RT have seen you know their audience share in the in a in their social media jump in these in these past uh, few weeks. I think I think a great example uh, here in Mexico is uh, John Ackerman, who is a um, a very well known journalist. He's a jurist. Uh, he teaches in the, uh, he, he teaches in the uh, Autonomous University of. Uh, of Mexico, also a strong supporter of AMLO, who had... Dennis, we're kind of losing you there. I'm going to see if the connection stabilizes. I know you were telling us about a very good example. I would love to hear it. But I'm going to see if the connection um, stabilizes, because I wanted to squeeze in a last question uh, for you, which is, you know, again, uh, uh, you said RT offers, uh, RT and other programming offered a perspective on international events. But I think what what people also forget is uh, these bodies were doing a lot of local reporting. And, uh, for example, the, the longtime president of, of Telesur said, you know, this is a loss. RT Espanol has been very significant in crucial moments in the region's re- uh, recent history. And so I, w- I wonder what you think, you know, uh, how, how important has been the impact of some of this reporting uh, on local events for local audiences? I say that uh, the work on, say, local reporting... The the structure of the RT in Espanol, I believe, has actually been made, have more or less been uh, uh, still intact across across South America. Uh, of course, the um, okay, the loss of the the loss of its YouTube channel, you know, the restrictions that have been placed on it on Facebook and on you know and on uh, Twitter have definitely impacted their work. But what's what's important to note is that you know RT in Espanol, even if the current restrictions are maintained. Uh, you know the current um, uh, the current restrictions are maintained. The current you know censorship is ma- is maintained uh, by the by the corporate officers. The RT is well a way to uh, uh, you know to reach its audiences. Yeah, like I said, RT in Espanol before uh, be, you know before the September was this channel in YouTube, and uh, I believe it's also fair to say it was one of the, you know number one channel in across other social media. Uh, platforms. So, you know, RT Espanol isn't something that would, that would, that would simply disappear in the next day. What I, uh, I want to fin- finish off with, with another interesting uh, uh, story which I came across uh, today. What's, what's very important to note is that uh, even RT being a state affiliate, being affiliated to, it's not something that's actually, it's not something which has. Uh, which, which has impacted it uh, negatively. In fact, it's been it's been the, the reverse. You see, Russia and the and the leadership of Vladimir Putin has actually has gathered a lot of admiration right across Latin America. And this is the kind of admiration which uh, which I would say is uh, transversal, or syncretic. You know, people from right right, right across the political spectrum across Latin America have a huge amount of respect uh, for Russia, and as a result of that. 
Uh, they also have a huge amount of respect for RT, for RT in Espanol. Even here in Mexico, uh, the in the Congress, Congress recently formed a a friendship with Russia uh, political group, which is comprised of of let's say the, the political parties of both left and right, but who are simply say committed to uh, maintaining um, uh, you know a strong relationship with Russia and opposing the attempts at censoring of the Russian media, the Russian affiliated media. Yeah, that was a journalist, Dennis Rogatiuk. He's of El Ciudad Año. He's also published in the Gray Zone. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. It was a little bit of a tricky connection, but we, we got through it and we hope we can talk to you again sometime. Great. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Uh, I, I can imagine in Latin America it, it, to countries that have been really subjugated by the United States might uh, find some affinity with the country that appears to be in some, you know, That's in right. reality often is uh, yeah, the, an opponent of, of U.S. policies for, for good reasons and bad. The, this control of information is very difficult. I remember when I was uh, stationed in Athens, Greece, you can tool around the radio dial on your way home and listen to music, Western music, Greek music, whatever, there was always a station that had Voice of America playing, mm-hmm. always. And it's it's odd to me and disappointing to me that um, there's this really uh, concerted effort to make sure that you can't ever do that with Russian media. Yeah, and it is as though you can't, you cannot allow a different perspective to be aired. Because in this story, we've got to wrap up really quickly, but, yeah. you know, in this story, the, the Longtime president of Talasur said, yeah, it, it provides a Russian perspective mm-hmm. on on the facts exactly. and also supports local reporting. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, that is what is the problem with that? Yes. Right? What's Everybody's the problem? Got perspective. I, I agree. It What's is, the it problem? Is, it is such a shame. Uh, we made it. I am sorry that that last connection was so poor. We'll have to talk to him again. He's a very interesting fellow. But that is it for us today. Uh, thanks to all the guests that we spoke to and, of course, our, our engineering and production team Indeed. here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow on Rumble and on the radio. Yep. Bye.